0: Way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Be not Hi folks, this is Jack SpearGo with another edition of the survival podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times. And the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 633 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, March the 28th, 2011. That means about 25% of the year is almost over. A quarter of 2011 has already come and gone. Christmas doesn't seem that long ago, does it? I bring these up once in a while. I'll say things like this. To just... Especially at the beginning of the show. Just to put a reminder in you, how much further have you moved your life toward liberty since the beginning of the year? And 25% of it is almost gone. I know that's not really a big uplifting thing on a Monday morning if you haven't done a lot. If you have, though, it probably is. I just once in a while need to stop and make you think, and I wanted to do that early today. It also feels like forever since I've done a show. I know you guys had a show all the way through last week up through Friday. So Friday came and went, and you guys had a show, and uh, it was a typical Friday show. But I did five shows in two days last week, Monday and Tuesday. crammed all my big work into two days, which was tough, because I was going up to Arkansas again. And I did, and I signed a lease, and we now have our official Hot Springs uh, office. It's actually in Hot Springs Village up on the ridgeline off Highway 7. Uh, way up in the mountains, really cool place, and uh, we'll be going back next week to start setting up the office so we can actually start broadcasting from there, and we've got the last bits of our move left to do. Uh, but everything is on track, and we should be out of here fully by the end of next month, which will be great. And again, I'd like to thank everybody that's helped make that happen by listening to this show, sharing the show, and for especially to the supporting members. Without you, it couldn't have happened, So thanks a lot for that. The reason I mention all of this is because I may be a little bit off today. You go this many days without doing a show, and your timing suffers. But I'll do the best I can for you. Today is a Monday, that means we're going to be doing your emails that come to Jack at dot com. And uh, in those emails, you either put question for Jack, uh, comment for Jack. Uh, video for Jack or article for Jack in the subject line, any one of those, and that way I can sort them better. A listener made a great suggestion. I think I'm going to implement it sometime soon. It'll probably be after we get some web hosting issues done. I may put a form together for you guys where so you just check a box and, and and type in your thing on the site, and that may make it a lot easier for me to sort. Everything will be automatic, and it'll always be perfect, uh, but we'll get to perfect later if you, for now, if you want to have your, uh, stuff on a show like this, again, the email address is jack at the podcast.com. All right. Um, let's go ahead and get, take care of our housekeeping before we get into your email commentary and questions. Uh, housekeeping item one is always sponsors of the day and sponsor of the day number one today is MERS radio. That is actually MERS hyphen radio.com. MERS is a great technology for additional communications. It's not a long-range communications technology like ham. But it's also not a licensed technology like HAM, so that means that you can use it without a license. It's really for communications up to about a mile to two miles in distance, and that is great for a lot of homesteaders. You can have a base station back at the house. that's always on when anybody goes out to do anything. They can take a radio with them, and that way there's always two-way communications without the hassles of something like a cell phone. Additionally, you can merge security systems with this, so there are motion detectors that you can get to go with your system that will tell you things like Alert Zone 1 or Alert Zone 2 by sensing heat and movement of uh, people, persons, or things moving around certain areas. So, for instance, I know when Max the dog's trying to escape the backyard, I also know if somebody's crawling around that front porch at night that doesn't belong there. Both good pieces of information to have. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal. Uh, really everything you could possibly want for all your prepping needs, from defensive tools to, to, to wilderness survival tools to long-term storage food. Great stuff from Safe Castle. Remember, they're one of the earliest supporters of the show. I think they were our first official sponsor. They have a great program called the Discount Buyers Club. a year. Those of you who join the Member Support Brigade, get that membership 100% free. So it pays for over half of your first year's membership as one benefit alone. And you get great discounts on every single thing that they offer after that. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys to connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Did a little bit of Facebook, and while I was gone, I had some connection issues uh, up on the mountain this time. So I didn't do as much as usual. But I do try to stay in touch with people via Facebook and Twitter uh, quite often with the show. And I put a lot of stuff out there, folks, that doesn't make it on the show. I get so much information I can't cram into one hour a day. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members, and you support the show at about, well, 20 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and take your first question. So since I've been off for a while, why start out with an easy question? Let's start out with something tough, and this one is tough. Uh, it's tough because I feel bad for the guy dealing with it, and tough because I don't have a simple answer. Uh, here's the question. comes from a person named Sean. We'll leave it at that. Uh, Sean says, "I'm not sure if you will even read this, given the huge amount of email you get. But just in case, I wanted to ask, uh, since I really appreciate your opinion in your podcast. Um, I really respect your opinion, enjoy your podcast, which, by the way, make my workday tremendously easier to tolerate. I'm a law-abiding, hardworking father of two boys, now 21 and 16. Almost 30 years ago, when I was 21 in college, I was arrested and charged with possession of co- cocaine, a felony." Since then, I have never been in trouble with the law. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs. I'm an active prepper. I do food storage, and I'm curious as to what you would suggest regarding home defense. With a felony on my record, I cannot legally own or purchase a firearm. It was a very bad mistake that has now stuck with me for the rest of my life. I am obviously a very different person and learned from that mistake some 30 years ago. How do I deal with it now in regards to home defense? Well, first let me say, I think that the fact that Possession of a co- of cocaine, possession, not the intent to sell, but possession is a felony in the first place, and that such a felony would preclude you from your right to self-defense. I, I find it obscene on its face. I'm not, you know, lobbying for legalizing cocaine. Obviously, I think that would be a terrible idea. Um, there's some other things that I think maybe should be legalized, but cocaine is a, just a general, uh, available on the street, legal thing. I, I think there'd be huge problems there. Um, but I don't think that someone that did cocaine when they're 21 represents a threat to uh, to uh society to the point where they should be disarmed. But that's the society we live in. And certainly I wouldn't want to see you arrested for felony possession of a weapon. Because that's probably what it would be now if you were in possession of a weapon when you're not supposed to have one. So what can we do? Well, we can fortify the home in the first place the way we should anyway, which is uh, you know alarm systems are they 're okay but they 're not really a big uh, a big thing as far as i 'm concerned. I think that there 's a you know the, the cops will show up by the time the guys are done cleaning out the house and if you 're there, uh, the alarm is really only so valuable to be fair on the other side of that argument my brother in law who 's a police officer of about sixteen years now uh, has had an alarm system in every home he 's ever owned has suggested that I do the same even though i don 't and insist that they're uh, really a very important element of home security. So I give you both sides of that view. What I think you're asking, though, more is your home. There's somebody coming into your home. How do you deal with that without a firearm? Well, the first thing you do is you go out and get yourself a couple really big, giant cans of of pepper spray. And, again, I recommend Cold Steel Inferno is, is my brand of choice, but they're all good. And you keep one. Uh, very, very close to every uh, major entrance of the home, the back door, the front door, and any other entrance that you may have to your home, like let's say the side door into your garage. Uh, that might even mean something like if there's a table there, a little bit of Velcro on the can, Velcro on the underside of the table, and it's right there kind of out of sight, out of mind, but you know where to grab it if you have it. And uh, anybody that's trying to breach entry, you give them a full dose of that. And I think that is one thing that's so easy to do, everybody should do it. The next thing is burglars, robbers, intruders in general do not like noise. They don't like noise at all. So get a dog, especially one of those little yippy-yappy dogs, that that type of thing. Um, It's not that they're afraid of the dog. It's that those little dogs, just they're psychopaths. And when they hear something out there, they just go ape and they go nuts and they start barking and barking and barking. And, uh, that's really a good, a good deterrent because my biggest thing I'm looking for is to be undetected. And, and now you've removed that from me. Around your, your, your windows, plant things that are, let's say, not comfortable to get through. And you can do this with things that are also very, uh, useful and functional. We don't have to plant holly, right? Everybody plants holly in front of the windows because you go to get the holly you get scratched up and all, but you really can't do much with it. But if you planted something like Rosa Ragusa, which are the old style roses with the big hips that are very, that are edible and medicinal, um, that's like crawling through Constantino wire. I mean, you can work with those plants easily, but if you want to get through them, they are a disaster. I mean, they'll just, they'll just cut you to shreds. You could plant some kind of a usable hedge, uh, some kind of berry hedge with those intermixed in there, uh, if you didn't want straight those. So do things to deter People from getting into entrance points. I guess is the other the other thing that you could do. And then arm yourself with whatever you're allowed to to own. And I don't know what that is in your state and with your laws. And you know I don't know. Are you precluded from owning? uh, I can't imagine you'd be precluded from owning a knife. Um, it's it's you know maybe you are precluded from carrying one, but in your home I can't imagine that would be the case. So that that would be another level of defense. Probably one of the most uh, useful in home defensive items that that you know is lethal or non lethal depending on how hard it's wielded is a good solid baseball bat. Um, there's no reason not to have one. It's a sporting utensil, a sporting you know sporting uh, item and what have you. And uh, man, it'll do the job. Now people will say you can't really swing a bat uh, full tilt inside a home. Well, that's not the way you use a bat defensively anyway. It really isn't. Um, they're better used as a projected weapon, uh, close grip on, on the lower side, more like a billy club, uh, also as a weapon that can be used to subdue and put somebody to the ground, sort of like a baton. And I'd say you get yourself a bat that's a little bit shorter than a grown man would probably use to hit a baseball with. Something more along the lines of something about an 11-year-old would use to hit a baseball with. The way some of these kids are growing up now due to all the hormones and steroids in their food, maybe a 9-year-old would use, to, you, get, you get my point, a short uh, solid wood baseball bat uh, i think is a really good implement and there's a lot of other things that you can do as well make your home look uninviting uh, to uh to 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 prowlers make sure that you have you know lights going on at different times of day uh, there's there's all types of things you can do a home security sign on the lawn it's not really a bad idea even if you don't have one it's just a, another level of deterrency. Uh, but then you know there's always the trump card it, it, i guess you're not married but if you are um, you could always have a spouse that's not convicted of a felony possess, control, own the weapons, and defend the home. And I know for a man, that might f- seem like a really big stretch to allow that to happen, but I'm gonna tell you, it doesn't matter who's defending the property. And if it ever came down to a point where like we're in a really end-all, be-all, you know, long-term shit-to-defense situation, then you may choose to use that to arm yourself at certain periods of acute stress. And I can only say that much, because I can't advise you to break the law, obviously. Uh, But you know what I'm saying there. So that's, that's kind of the best I can do for that. But you just have to take the same approach that people all around the world who live in countries where they can't own a firearm do. Uh, you def- you you know you set up whatever means of defense you possibly can for yourself. I'd also talk to a lawyer and see if there's any way around this, this hurdle. There may not be, but it's worth a conversation. 21, possession of cocaine, not intent to tr- intent to sell. Um, uh, you might have gotten railroaded back then to begin with. Uh, so I, I would maybe have a conversation with an attorney about that. I can't promise anything, but it can't hurt. Let's go ahead and take another one. Okay, this one comes from some folks in New York. We'll just say Todd. Todd says, My wife and I recently purchased 20 acres in the northern New York State, have put in a small cabin on the property. Approximately five hours from where we live now, we'd like to start some long-term investment crops that will eventually start to pay us back. We have been thinking about planting ginseng as a low-maintenance crop that does well with little or no care in a woodland setting. What are your thoughts on using ginseng for a long-term, low-maintenance crop? Any other ideas on things we could do to start some payback from the land? By the way, after only 15 months of mortgage, we will have a property and cabin completely paid off. Being debt-free is a wonderful feeling. All right, well, Todd... Um I think ginseng is a great thing. I think it's a very high dollar herb. I think that it is very low maintenance. I'm not familiar with propagating it at all. I know it's actually quite difficult to propagate. Um, I know that the places that I've been able to find seed for ginseng generally stays sold out. Uh, I know that roots themselves, which are the part that people want to get their hands on, cost a lot of money, and I don't think it's a root crop where you can take one root and cut it up into pieces and plant each piece and it'll grow back. I, I don't think it works that way. I know it doesn't really lend itself well to cultivation, which is part of why it's so expensive, but if you can get a hold of starts or seeds and, and get that going throughout your, your property, um, I think that you would have a really great little cash crop there. With 20 acres, you're only going to grow so much of it. You don't ever find big groves of ginseng. It doesn't grow that way. You'll find one here and one there. Um, so I think it's a great idea. But I can only give you so much on it because it's just not something I have a lot of personal hands-on experience with at all. I've never cultivated ginseng. But if you can get it to work, great. Some other things you might consider that don't have quite the value but would be a, a really great high dollar crop that is easy to propagate would be something like groundnut. And I wouldn't say high dollar crop, but a very, very, um, a very good crop to have. Uh groundnut, uh, which is uh also known by its scientific name of Apios Americana, is uh, it, it's not really a nut at all. It's a tuber that kinda tastes like a cross between a a chestnut and a potato. And uh, they're not really a high-dollar crop unless you can start finding maybe a local farmer's market or something to offer them through, and then they might be a, a quite high-dollar crop. You're going to want to grow these in areas to get reasonable sun along your edges. They will grow, they will propagate, and they will expand all on their own. Uh, they grow wild throughout the northeastern United States down into the southern states as well. Uh, they are one of the best things in the world for a diabetic to eat. They are great for weight control. Uh, they are higher in protein than just about any other vegetable source you can find, including many beans. I mean, they are just an outstanding overall thing. The reason I give you the scientific name, I don't usually do that a lot, is because a lot of times if you just go looking for groundnut, you're going to find peanut. And a lot of the rest of the world, other than the United States, calls peanuts groundnuts. I wasn't aware of this until I was watching a cooking show. This dude was over in Vietnam cooking, and the, the lady referred to the peanuts they were putting in the, in the meal as groundnut. And uh I and kind of looked that up and found out that is the case. But you're looking for Apius Americana, and uh, it is a great additional thing that you could grow there. And I would say anything that goes along the lines of a fruit, a vine, a bush, a tree, maybe put in some hugelkultur beds. I'm, I'm kind of going to that as a, as a catch-all, be-all now that I've, I've learned about the technique. Um, those types of things would work really well for you. I also want to use this opportunity to introduce something to the, sh- to the show audience here. Uh, that I was just made aware of that is a really cool thing. It's called Groasis. And that, that's spelled G-R-O-A-S-I-S, like Groasis, like an Oasis, Groasis. And um, the uh, the guy that created this, I think, is uh, from from Holland or something like that, and the co- the company's out of the U.K. And I'm going to try to get the CEO of the company onto the show next week is what it looks like it's going to be now. But this is a little round box that's for starting tiny trees or trees from seed. And basically you fill it with water and it creates condensation drip and it only drips about two ounces of moisture into the soil a day, which doesn't sound like a lot. and It's not a lot, but it's enough that it actually gets a tree to drive its roots two meters or six feet into the ground very, very quickly. And once a tree's done that in its first year, it can get by anywhere even in the desert, certainly in a place like New York. So for your fruit trees and nut trees, you folks that are out there, you may want to look into this product. Right now it's only available in large quantity orders because they don't have any U.S. distributors. Uh, we're actually talking, we have the gear shop talking to them about possibly becoming a distributor, and I'm sure they will set up distributorships here in the U.S. So that would be a way to get a lot of things established and to do it very inexpensively if you're doing it from very small seedlings or you're doing it from seeds and nuts. I'll leave, um, I'll leave it to... Uh, the, the guy that we're going to bring on, the, the CEO of the company that we're going to bring on for an interview to explain this, but I'm learning a lot now about why a lot of times trees fail that are grown, and it's not just the circling roots, but the tap roots, uh, that go down into the soil. I'm learning a lot about that from investigating this product. I'll put a link in the show notes today to the Groasis website, uh, specifically a slideshow you can look at that'll explain a lot of what I'm talking about. But, so groundnut, any kind of fruit nut trees, things like that. If you can get filberts to grow up there, they're a great cash crop. You know, one hedgerow of filberts 20 feet long can produce bushels and bushels and bushels of filberts. Ginseng, if you can make it work, go for it. It's a great, uh, it's a great high dollar crop. Very small amount of, uh, ginseng represents a fairly large amount of cash. Also may be a very good, uh, commodity to have in your hands in a long term shit at the fan if that should ever happen. Let's take another question. So I got this article and, uh, it gives me an opportunity to say something that I think maybe people have gotten the wrong idea about my opinion of America because of my admiration for Japan. Uh, but the, uh, the person that emailed it to me, makes a simple comment. It says, so much for no looting in Japan. And then there's a link, and this is from a guy named Eric, and it says, 500,000 gone from a tsunami-cracked bank vault. And there's a link. And I'll read the article to you because it's short. Tokyo. The earthquake and tsunami that pulverized cultural Japan crippled a bank's security mechanisms and left a bank vault wide open. That allowed someone to walk off with 40 million yen, or $500,000. The March 11 tsunami was washed over the the march 11 tsunami washed over the shirkin bank like much else in cons- some name i can't say uh, and police said between the wave's power and the ensuing power outages, the vault came open. The bank was flooded and things were thrown all over. It was a total mess. Somebody stole the money in the midst of the chaos, said the police officer in prefecture, pref- uh, where Kisuma is located. The bank notified police on Tuesday, 11 days after the disaster, said the official who spoke on customary condition to an, uh, an anonymity because he was not authorized to talk to the media. So basically, somebody walked off with a half a million bucks out of a bank. This is my problem with the person that sent the article and Not a personal problem, just a, a problem with the concept of how this story is now circulating on Facebook and things like that and, and the way that it came to me. So much for no looting in Japan. Somebody, one person walking in and stealing some money is not looting. Is it technically looting by the, uh, by the dictionary definition of looting? Yeah. Using a disaster and the advantage that, but it's a bank robbery. Right? Looting, when you say looting as a journalist, you, people have this you know concept of what went on with Hurricane Katrina lots of people uh in kind of a mob fashion taking anything and everything they can get the The fact of the matter is <clears throat> if you leave a bank open, somebody anywhere in the world is going to walk in and take money out of the bank so this helps me transition to what I've been trying to say about what's going on here because there's another story I want to cover. Uh, before I, I, I say the rest of this, and that is something that's actually pretty amazing. And, and this is one that, if you just saw the pictures, you might check Snopes out to see if it's true. But uh, this is true, it's been verified, it's in a lot of the media now. I first came across it through somebody on the Facebook page, and uh, the article was on the Daily Mail, which is a fairly large publication out of the UK. And uh, this is the headline, the Japanese road repaired six days after it was destroyed by the quake. And there's a picture, I'm not going to read the article, you can do that yourself, because the pictures are what tell the story. And there's a guy walking, and there's about three good rips in this road. The biggest one is right at the, right at the uh, shoulder line. And there's enough of the earth heaved up that it's as tall as the guy walking next to it. So we're talking five and a half, six feet uh, of difference between one part of the road and the other. It's absolutely ripped asunder. You look at it and go, how could anybody uh, ever expect to drive on this road anytime soon? And then six days later, there's a picture and the road looks perfect and brand new. And what people have been sending this to me have been saying is your prediction about the Japanese being basically recovered from this disaster before we put one tenant in the World Trade Center, looks like it's going to come true, and it is. And by the way, nobody's taking that bet with me. But I am getting blowback from some people that are taking it as they're not better than us, that we're not that bad, you know, the American people. Listen, this is not about the American people individually. This is about the American government and the American people collectively. Those are two very different things. Can we, do we have people in America that can go out to a road like this and fix it in six days? You bet your ass. You know, one group would be the Army Corps of Engineers. So, can we do it? Yes. Will we do it? Do we do it is another thing altogether. Now, there's some people that have told me about a few places where there's been roads, uh, interrupted in the U.S. that were key roads after natural disasters that was done in like two weeks or less. So we can do it sometimes. My point is, Those buildings in New York City came down 10 years ago. And we've got 50 floors framed out in open steel in 10 years. This is the, to to really understand how bad that is, when we built the first two towers, two of them, side by side, from the ground up, from the time they started it till they were finished with it, seven years to build it the first time. 10 years nowhere near close to done the second time when they were hit by a disaster and we're making it a big deal that we're rebuilding new orleans there's still parts of that city that haven't been put back together the problem that we have here in america and you have to accept this whether you want to or not number 1 a large portion of our people don't give a shit they don't give a shit and they're too soft they you know one thing that's never really happened to america uh, other than the War of 1812 and the Revolution, which is so long ago, nobody living remembers it, we've never had to deal with anybody dropping bombs on us. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, I'm saying it's the truth. You know, we didn't have to deal with the things that Europe did, that, that Japan did, that, that Northern Africa did, that Italy did. I mean, we, we the, the Russians did. And that's made us a softer people. We We don't really know what it is to be pushed to the level that those people were. And that ethic then was taken from two generations ago and passed through these last two generations. We're very far away from that type of an experience. Again, not that that in itself is bad, but it does something to a people that come through a hardship. And then if you really think that the average American isn't more apathetic than the average Japanese, you're just in denial. And I'm sorry, and it doesn't matter that you're not. You have to remember, if we ever have a really big disaster here that you're in the middle of, it's not whether or not you're prepared or whether or not you have ethics or whether or not you have morals or whether or not you have stamina. It's about all the people that will be around you, surrounding you, and doing stupid shit. And whether you want to accept it or not, here's the facts. Katrina showed America at our worst. And this earthquake has shown Japan at their best. But it's not like every time something happens here, we have a Katrina-level event. Rita was a terrible event. The looting didn't happen. It wasn't as bad as Katrina, but the looting didn't happen. I was in the middle of New York City. I think it was 2003 when the lights went out. Nothing happened. Everybody did what they were supposed to do in New York. On 9-11, you saw the best that was in America. People weren't looting in the middle of the 9-11 disaster. So we've had our good moments, too. And that means that when we look at a place like Japan, you have to accept that there could be another place in another scenario in another type of neighborhood where maybe you would see the other side of that society. No human being is perfect. But when I talk about rebuilding, that's all off the table. When I talk about rebuilding, it has nothing to do with the, the Americans' will to rebuild or the individual Japanese citizens' will to rebuild. It's about the government. And the government in Japan certainly isn't perfect. They do a lot of things that make me happy. I live here. But when it comes to putting their country back together, they push the red tape out of the way and they just do it. And it's something we could learn from. So hopefully that makes my statements on this in the past a little bit more clear. Let's go ahead and take another one. Here's a little more direct, hands-on, prepper-level question, which I love these kind of stuff. But guys, get these kind of questions to me for these shows. Jack, I'm a new listener but I've been a prepper for a while now. My question is regarding our home. Uh, we have two traditional wood-burning fireplaces in our house. My wife has been pushing for gas fireplace inserts, but I don't see the benefit as it will leave us less prepared in emergency. I would like to get wood fireplace inserts as they burn better, heat the house better, and open fireplaces uh, than the open fireplaces we have now. What do you think? Are they both a waste of money? Love the podcast. And the guy's name's Jared. Well, Jared, let me put it to you this way. Neither one of them is a waste of money and neither one of them is a bad idea and neither one of them is really better for long-term preparedness than the other unless you live on 20 wooded acres okay um, let's start with let's start with gas and the advantages of gas if you go with propane instead of grid supplied gas you can put one big propane tank outside plumb that to your home and you can have a year's worth of gas sitting there That's pretty gone prepared. 99.9% of all disasters you'll ever face gets overkill for. The real long-term shit at the fan, well, you can always yank out the inserts and go back to wood then. When you run out of your year's worth of propane. If you're tied into the grid, it's not quite as sustainable, but... The fact of the matter is that gas lines are under the ground, and they're buried, and they're very well protected, and they're they're buried quite deep. And someone that put a few in, I can tell you they're down there. They're down at around uh, 36 to 48 inches of cover minimum. So they are fairly well protected. Uh, the biggest thing that's likely to cause damage to them is some type of um you know, construction where someone hits a, a line and they have to shut it off for a while, uh, due to damage. And even in the, those situations, a lot of times they don't shut down the gas. Uh, it, it's amazing, but I've seen them basically buy, do a bypass and, uh, and then fix the line and repressurize it. That way everybody doesn't lose service down the line. So uh, a lot of times, even when the line hit, uh, unless you're right where the line's hit and they're worried about the gas coming up out of the hole and filling up your garage or something like that, um you're not in any, uh, loss of service or danger. So, grid gas is probably the most reliable grid thing we get. Now, an earthquake like they had in Japan, could that disrupt it? Sure it could. I mean, you gotta, you know, you got to be blind to say that, you know, if you look at the pictures of the road I just talked about, to think that that couldn't shear off a gas line, well, so you could lose it. But gas in itself is more sustainable than electricity. It really is. Um, Wood I like, though. I I really like wood. Now, wood comes with sturdy, and you have to go get the wood, and you have to season the wood. See, the thing about gas is I could put five tanks outside if I wanted to with propane. I could buy fill them all up. It'll cost me quite a bit of money, but from the second I buy it, Forward, I own it, it's mine, and it has an infinite storage life. Wood, I go out and cut it up, and I may not be able to burn it for six months to a year depending on what type of wood I'm cutting in the first place. If I'm cutting green wood, it really needs to season for a year to be good quality burning wood. So it's like six in one half a dozen in the other there. So it's really about the convenience factor of gas versus the you know local sourcing capability of wood. And if you have 20 wooded acres, well, then wood really makes a lot of sense. On the inserts, they are a huge, huge uh, step up from a fireplace. The smaller ones uh, that have like the least effect go to about a 75% efficiency rating, meaning about 75% of the heat generated gets into the home. Uh, a wood fire in a fireplace puts about 90% or more of its heat up the chimney and will actually draw hot air from external rooms. So you can heat a living room with a uh, with a fireplace, but you actually chill a bedroom on the outskirts of the home because it's pulling air, cold air, through the home, and it lowers the external temperatures of the external rooms, or not the, the internal uh, temperatures of the external rooms. So fireplaces are inherently inefficient. Inserts are a huge step up. Folks that don't know what he's asking about, he's not asking about Let's say a, uh, like a blower, like basically just like a thing that goes in the back of the fireplace and pulls air in and blows it out. These things are actually kind of like a hybrid. They almost look like a, uh, a cross between a wood stove and a fireplace, uh, that inserted to the fireplace and they jut out a little bit onto your hearth. They run anywhere from, you know, inexpensive ones at $900 to very expensive one can be several thousands of dollars. You know, Home Depot makes, uh, or sells a pretty basic one. Uh, It's designed to heat 1,500 square feet. It's a black, satin black looking one. They look good just about anywhere. They're about 1400 bucks, And I think that's a good model. I've actually looked at and touched that model. That's why I bring it up. Uh, The reviews on it are all very good. So what you're talking about is kind of a halfway point between a wood stove, right, and a fireplace. So this this thing that inserts. I'll, I'll put a... A link to this thing on Home Depot today. You can take a look at it, and it's really to give you an idea. And there's another company that makes some beautiful ones that I'll put a link to. I'm not really recommending them. I'm just wanting people to be able to see. So either either one of these types of things for gas or wood is a huge upgrade and actually would be able to heat your home very well for you. So I think they're both very good investments. So what it comes down to is if you're able to locally source your wood, especially if you're able to do that for free by sweat equity, if you have wood that you can coppice and uh, you know cut and let regrow, if you can get very inexpensive firewood, if you have the space to store it, things like that, then you're better off with wood. If you if you have to purchase wood at full market rate and have it delivered, um, you're actually probably better off with gas. So that that's kind of the way I would make the decision there. But either way, if you're going to rely on a fireplace for heating, an insert is the way to go. Great question. Thanks for that one. Let's take another one. So this uh, this next one comes from a guy uh, named Bob, believe it or not, his Bob. Bob says just got turned on your show and prepping in general due to articles just like this one and he's got a link to an article on Fox News. And it's not that I disagree with any bit of this article, it's the partisan nature of it that I disagree with and I'll get to that in a second. But it does kind of frame our vulnerability economically right now uh, very very clearly. Joint Chiefs Chairman Admiral Mike Mullen put it bluntly, the biggest threat to our national security is our debt. He added that in 2012, America will pay $600 billion in interest on the debt about what we spend on national defense. I want to say that again. In 2012, we will spend as much on interest on the debt as we do on the Department of Defense. If that doesn't send a shiver up your spine, you need to like, Take like three deep breaths and kind of shake out your arms and your face and get the blood flowing through your body and wake the hell up and understand what I just said. In 2012, we'll spend $600 billion on interest on the debt. If that doesn't anger you, get out from under your rock. All right? Let me go back into the article. Our adversaries are well aware of our vulnerability more than a year ago. Chinese Communist General Lao Yan told the state-run Xinthan News Agency that China should attack the U.S. by oblique means, such as dumping some U.S. government bonds. China currently holds about $1.6 of U.S. debt. Today, America is precariously balanced on an economic knife edge, thanks to the run-amuck spending of the Obama administration. What is the government doing about the mounting debt? So far, it's just printing money. And let me go, I'm going to skip down the article, you can read the whole thing if you want to, Um, but this comes in, and the title of this article is Michael Reagan says, Obama's doing what my dad Ronald Reagan did to the Soviet Union, except he's doing it to us internally. Um, I I just want to, uh, this is Michael Reagan talking here toward the end, I want to read this last part, and then I want to tell you why some of the partisan stuff in this is bullshit. In my book, The New Reagan Revolution, I tell about sharing the stage with former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev in 2005. I told the audience how my father, Ronald Reagan, deliberately collapsed the Soviet Union in the 1980s, resulting in the fall of Soviet communism. I turned to Gorbachev and I asked, tell us, Mr. Gorbachev, how bad was the economy in those days? He replied, oh Michael, it was so bad. Can you imagine Russian women not being able to buy pantyhose? We were so bankrupt I had to appoint a pantyhose czar to smuggle pantyhose into the Soviet Union. The audience erupted in laughter. It was funny in 2005. Today, I'm not laughing. So that's Ronald Reagan talking about talking to Gorbachev. And you can read the whole article. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But... Do I disagree for one minute that Obama is running amok with spending? No. Do I disagree that the Democrat Congress that came in with Obama went run amok with spending? No. Do I disagree that things like the health care bill uh, have made the problem worse? No. I don't disagree with any of that. But if you're going to blame Barack Obama for this, you are the most short-sighted human being on the planet. The man's been president for two and a half years. Two and a half years. Has he done massive damage to the country? Yes. Yes. But we've been doing this since before Ronald Reagan was president. And every president, every single president, from 1913 forward, since we got a Federal Reserve, has increased spending, has increased the size and scope of government, and has increased the national debt. From that period till today, there was one period of time where the national debt seemed to come down and uh, the government size seemed to come down, and spending seemed to come down there's really two there's one a little bit under Truman, right a little bit under Truman right after the war, because they pulled back a lot of spending. They said, "Oh no we'll go back into depression, we, and we did it, and it didn 't happen and then Eisenhower came in, and Eisenhower built the highway systems and all, but he really kind of put a, a hold on spending growth as well and and that you know looked really good, like we didn't grow our debt. But you know what happened under Ike the emergence of consumer credit to the nth degree, and all that happened was instead of the debt swelling in the public sector, the debt swelled in the private sector, that happened for long enough and people had prosperity with debt, and then the government went to taxing them, and JFK put like the marginal tax rate on capital gains over a million dollars at like 90%. And then the government swapped that back over and went back to incurring debt. And every president has gotten us to where we are today. Every Congress has gotten us to where we are today. It is not the government and the Congress so much. It is the system. This is what people just still refuse to understand. And you will buy into this bullshit as long as you don't understand this. Every dollar is a certificate for debt. To be more money in the economy, there must be more debt in the economy. When you talk about paying down the debt, you're talking about reducing the number of dollars in circulation. The system's insane. That's the real problem. Now, is Michael Reagan right? Is the current administration basically doing to itself what his father did to the Soviet Union? In a way, yes. In a way, because they've taken this insane system and they've gone totally. Completely berserk nuts with it. To to have deficits over one point five trillion dollars are insane. But what are the Republicans doing? They're out there fighting to keep their campaign promises to cut spending by a hundred million dollars. A hundred million dollars? What's a hundred million dollars out of a budget of three point seven trillion dollars? It's a rounding error, in the words of my gazer. And what are they cutting the hundred million dollars from? Oh, things like you know, home health care uh, for old people that are dying. Yeah, that's that's what we'll cut. You know that that's what we'll cut. Uh, food stamps and WIC, and it, maybe should we cut that? Yeah, but you know who's going to get cut first? Probably the people that actually need it. it, it it's nonsensical on its face. This is a long term problem with no solution other than we have to reduce the size and scope of government. That's it. There's no, and that means for all of you that are like, yeah, let's reduce the size and scope of government, a lot of the free crap and free stuff everybody's getting has to go away and it's going to affect you too. See, everybody's like okay with this until it goes to your little sacred cow. You know, you've got kids in school and they say, well, there's going to be 34 kids in a class instead of 28. I don't want that. No, see, it doesn't work that way. This has got to be done everywhere, in every place for it to matter. And it's probably not going to happen. Their solution is going to be to tax you and me more. On that note, um, let's look at how they're going to tax us more. I, I really, this is another one of those, I told you so, I wish I was wrong. All right. I mean, this is uh, uh, one of those times where I go, you know, two and a half years ago, when I first started doing the show. This is back in around August of 2008. I was on the air one day and I said, listen, this is what's going to happen. Going in the next couple of years with this recession and all, one thing that is going to be really amped up is the automotive industry. And they're going to come out with plug-in hybrids, they're going to come out with fully electric automobiles, and America is going to vastly begin to decrease its use of gasoline. It's going to happen. It's either going to be gas prices and just driving less, or technology or the two working together, but the government's going to lose money. The government doesn't want us to be fuel efficient. Well... Um, Jeff sends me this. You were right again. They're trying to figure out how to tax how many miles we drive. Since they're losing tax revenue from so many of us buying hybrid and electric cars, don't you know? And, surca- and sarcasm. Found an interesting link on the Drudge Report. CBO, taxing mileage is a practical option for revenue enhancement. Uh, and this is on the Hill. So let me read this one to you here. Um CBO, taxing mileage is a practical option for revenue enhancement. Revenue enhancement, that means bleeding money out of the American people. The Congressional Budget Office this week released a report saying saying that taxing people on how many miles they drive is a possible option for raising new revenues. And these taxes could be used to offset the cost of highway maintenance at a time when federal funds are short. The report discussion discussed the proposal in great detail, including the development of technology that would allow total vehicle miles traveled or VMT to be tracked, reported and taxed, as well as the pros and cons of mandating the installations of this technology in all vehicles. In the past, the efficiency costs of implementing a system of VMT charges, uh, particularly the cost of users' time for slowing and queuing the toll booths, uh, would clearly have outweighed the potential benefits for far more efficient of highway capacity, the CBO wrote. Now, electronic metering and billing are making mile per, uh, making per mile charges a practical option, close quote. In other words, we didn't ever not tax your mileage because it, it wasn't something we wanted to do. We couldn't figure out how to do it. And then it goes on to how there's still a technological hurdle here that cars would have to be affixed with devices that would track the mileage and where they went and yada yada. And then there would be maybe this thing in the pump and how expensive would it be? And you could do it with new cars, but what about retrofitting old cars? and all this stuff that makes it look so difficult. Folks, the technology exists. It's very, very inexpensive. It's called a toll tag. The, all this is, uh, I'll give you the article. You can read the whole thing. It's all white noise. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You have to buy tags for your vehicle every year and you get a sticker. Some states you put it on your license plate. Most states now you put it in your window. You're not going to get a, t- a sticker anymore. You're going to get a little box. It's going to be about the size of an iPhone, maybe a little bit smaller. And it's going to be the same thing that people have like easy pass or toll tag or whatever you call it in your area. And it's going to go in your vehicle. And it's going to have an RFID chip in it. And when you drive down the road, you're going to go past little markers that are going to take a little picture of your car, an electronic picture, not an actual picture, right? What I mean by picture is a snapshot of of a record, a data record. So I'm not saying a photo of your car. And uh, it's going to just say the car was here, and then it was here, and then it was here, so we know it traveled this fast, and this is where it went. Just like it does on a tollway right now. Basically, it's not even going to be called a tax. They're going to turn all the roads into toll roads. In fact, what they'll do is a magician's trick. They may get rid of gas taxes altogether. They may get rid of the gasoline tax altogether. And they'll only tax you for mileage when they get enough infrastructure in to pretty much cover every road in America. Uh, when they when they have everything covered, at least all the main roads, then they'll, what they'll do is a bait and switch. Ah, uh, see, so yeah, this will be great. You only, you know, you drive at different times of day, you pay less. You drive the speed limit, you pay less. You drive a heavy vehicle, you pay more. They're gonna do something like this. It's gonna happen. But what I want to read to you is a couple of um, the comments uh, from people that don't get it, that are like, duh, at this article. Here's one from BC: Ninety percent of the damage to highways is done by heavy trucks. All caps, they are the ones that should be taxed, not regular drivers. Those damn truckers, Those they're the ones that do this. What an idiot. Do you not think, Mr. BC idiot, that when you go to the store to buy stuff that got taken there on a truck, they're going to take that tax and pass it on to you? See, when I talk about the dumbing down of the American people, BC is an example. BC is never going to listen to this show, I guarantee you that. And he's off somewhere right now thinking that he's a genius for just taxing the truckers. And he has no concept at all as to what he's actually going to do. Here's another one. This is by Reason. Reason says, typical liberal response to everything. Tax and spend, tax and spend, until there's nothing to defend. Or how about you just stop spending our money? Sounds like a reasonable thing, except this is not a liberal proposal. This is not liberal. This is from the Congressional Budget Office. The non-partisan people that just figure out where and how to get money. This is the system we're in. Why do you think they're doing this? Oh, because we need trillions of dollars to fix our roads. We're trillions of dollars in debt. And they don't have the money. And the only way to get it is by borrowing it. So they're trying to borrow enough to get enough in circulation to then suck it out of your hands and suck it out of your bank account and tax you on it because that's the system we're in. We're in a system where... As the Federal Reserve expands the economy by printing more money, the government then must turn around and tax you to fund the Federal Reserve. I, I, I know this is like hard for some people to accept, but the QE, the quantitative easing, QE1, QE2, and now there's going to be a QE3, eventually we have to pay it in taxes. If you look at the deficit, how much money the government spent that it didn't have last year, and you add up the new debt... That the Federal Reserve created, plus the interest on the debt, the income tax and that number are almost the same. The, the debt and the tax, the debt and the interest is actually a little bit more. We are taxed to fund the creation of money. And the more money we create, the more we must be taxed. And they're going to figure out a way to do it. This is just one other way. This is not a Democrat versus Republican issue. I'm sorry. I don't like to get too political on this show, but if you believe that, what happened for six years? With a President Bush and a Republican Congress and a Republican Senate, the growth of spending and the growth of debt and the growth of interest on the debt. And and the Democrats took over it. All they did was hockey stick it. It, It's like one party's driving a car at a 45-degree angle to the cliff. And another party is driving the car on a straight line to the cliff. But both are heading to the cliff. And we're actually arguing about who's doing a better job. They're both taking us to the cliff. And the cliff is a very nasty place. This country is in store for what happened to the Soviet Union. It won't look the same. Because it's a different kind of government. It's a different kind of people. It's a different country. They have different resources. It's a different culture. It's a different heritage. It's a different history. It's not like all of a sudden all the states are going to be independent, you know, sovereigns. It's not like you're going to break into six sections like the one Soviet scientist said. Uh, We don't really know what it's going to look like. But we're going to go broke. There's going to be defaults, and there's going to be a lot of pain when it happens, and they're going to have to revalue the entire economic system of the United States. You want me to tell you when? I can't. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you, if you read this, read this whole article, you'll see that the stuff I've been telling you, I'm not crazy. This is exactly, I told you, two and a half years ago. Actually, 33 months ago, I started the show. So probably about 30 months ago, which is right at two years ago, or two and a half years ago, I said this exact thing would happen this exact thing now I'm not gonna be one of these idiots like I had insider information no it's just obvious all you have to I'm not a futurist right all I had to do was look at the current technology where things were going where the biggest shortfalls would occur and if I were a government bureaucrat how would I fix the problem if I didn't care about the American people I just cared about getting more from them and the way I would do it is I would tax them for everywhere they drove And since they don't have a stomach for me to increase the gas price, I would find another way to do it. And I would sell it to them, soft sell it to them, as a good thing. It will start out, it's just an expansion of the tollway system. Oh, then you know what we're going to do? We're going to create an express lane. It's going to cost you more to drive in the fastest lane on the highway. If you get over there, the little computers on the certain highways will determine you're there. And it only is going to do that during certain times of the day. So basically, we'll create HOV lanes without building new HOV lanes. And one guy can drive. If you want to pay more, you drive in there. If you don't, you drive in one of the other lanes. And then that will be a soft sell. And we'll just expand that like a hydra throughout everything. And eventually, every time you get in that car, and you get a car that's electric and powered by a solar panel, you're still going to pay more tax than you ever did with gasoline. That that would be where we would end up. Here's the first, the first shot across the bow. And notice how they make it like they're not quite sure how to do it yet. Right? Like, oh, we could, read the whole article. It's great. You know, we'd have this computer in the gas pump, and we would have this computer in the car, and all it is is a, it's a freaking toll tag. And you want the best part? You want the best part? You say, well, I'm not going to have a toll tag. Your little toll tag, the cop sets up like his little uh, radar thing, but instead of running radar to see how fast you're driving, he just sets it up to see if every car that comes by has one. And if it comes by and your tags are out of date or you don't have your tags, he pulls you over and he writes you a ticket for not having a current registration. Welcome to the police state, folks. That's what's coming. You think I'm crazy? Read the article and you tell me where you think it's going. Let's go ahead and take another question by email. Start bringing the blood pressure back down. Take a more practical, prepper question again here. Hey, Jack, question. What kind of pollinators can we encourage besides bees? Can we replace bees as a pollinator? Reason, my wife is extremely afraid of all bee-like creatures. Her family used to punish her by making her stand underneath a wasp nest would help develop the phobia. We are working on her fears, but it takes a long time to undo something like that. Thanks, Jason from Oklahoma City. Well, I think the first thing we have to explain to your wife is that bees are everywhere anyway. So it's not about you, Jason, bringing a beehive to your house. So don't, don't, don't worry about that anyway. If you have lots of good stuff to pollinate, bees are going to show up, and she's going to have to learn to deal with this because this is a fact of life. Um, since she's not allergic to bees, obviously, because I'm sure you would have included that, um, she's not in any real danger. All right? The next thing would be to explain that there are pollinators that you could have colonized on your property, like mason bees, that just don't stink. I mean, you can take your hand and put it directly in front of a, a, you know, where mason bees are nesting, and they'll fly right through your fingertips, and they won't even slow down. You actually have to grab one and squeeze it to get it to sting you, and I, I've actually never seen anybody stung by. I don't know anybody. Uh, my understanding is they can, but, but I don't know anybody who says, yes, I was stung by a mason bee. So that would be one. If you plant lots of flowers, you're going to get lots of pollinators. Can you re- can we replace bees as pollinators? Not really, because there's some things they pollinate better than anything else. But there's a lot of pollinating insects out there. Uh, there are also some pretty good predatory pollinating insects. One is hoverflies. And uh, if you plant plant sweet acillum, uh you will attract tons of hoverflies. Uh, parsley, if left to go to its second year uh, in flower, attracts hoverflies like you know, no get out. So there's all types of little flies that are also pollinators. And there's all types of little tiny bee-type creatures uh, that are less obvious than a honeybee uh, that you can attract. And it all really comes down to habitat. So as much variety and diversity of flowers as possible. Um, with your wife, you got to ask her a question. Does she want to let the asinine stupidity done to her by her family... By the way, if this was my wife... I'd be really tempted to get whoever did this to her, and, and family or not, punch them in the freaking face. I, I think you should play this. In fact, you know what? I think you should play this. For the people that did this to your wife, they are scum. I'm sorry, they are. What kind of piece of shit does this? I I, I really need to calm myself down because I was supposed supposed to calm me down. What kind of piece of shit does this to a kid? Make them stand under a wasp nest to punish them? If you did this to a child, anybody that would do anything like this to a child, you should be smacked in the face at minimum. I'd like to punch these people square in the face. I really would. What a crappy thing to do. So you have to ask her, as a human being, do you want to let the actions of these people affect the way you treat you know, yourself for the rest of your life? And the answer clearly should be no. And and I'm really sorry that that happened to her. But... The fact is that people work with bees all the time, and even when they get stung, it's not that big a deal. Being stung by a honeybee and being stung by a wasp are two entirely different uh, uh, scenarios. Uh, being stung by a honeybee just doesn't really, unless you're allergic, it's not that big a deal. And they're not very aggressive creatures. Um, I know beekeepers that you know, mow the lawn right up to their hives and, and don't even worry about them when they do that, and the bees go on about their business. Um, so wasps and hornets and, and yellow jackets and things like that are a lot more of a danger. But the answer to your question is simple. And, and folks, I'm sorry I snapped out a little bit there, but you should be angry too. And, and it's the kind of thing that when people do stuff like this to a kid, I just saw this lady on TV while I took a break go refilled a coffee cup that has this little girl that she's injecting Botox into and wants to have lip liner tattooed on this 8-year-old girl's lips. There's a point where there's nothing left except a good solid punch in the face. I mean, there's a point where one person is abused to another person to a point where something should be done about it. And, and it, it just things like this should not happen. And um, so I wish your wife the best. And hopefully she doesn't too mad at me for saying that the people that did this to her scum. And they may not be now, but at the time they were. And uh, if I saw somebody doing this to a child, I would intervene. And if, if the person resisted in any way, I'd plant one on them and I'd put them to the ground. And if I, go to, if I go to jail and have to pay a fine for that, it's money well spent. It'd be like a guy my dad told me about, that a judge gave him $500 for hitting a guy, and he said, can I give you 1000 because it's the best money I ever spent, and I can go outside and crack him again. I probably wouldn't tell a judge that. But, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's a sick thing to do to a kid. All right, next one. Um, Jack, I'm thinking about changing the direction of my life and value your opinion, so here's my question. I currently work in the service industry and make a relatively comfortable living at a high-end hotel. I started to hate my job and would like to enlist in the Canadian military as an infantry soldier. It's been a lifelong dream of mine, and I will be 30 this year and feel the time is right. I'm getting married at the end of the summer and concerned that I may be putting a strain on, our, on the lives of my family and members while deployed overseas. I already mentioned a few times we only get one go-around for this world, what to, and we should make the most of it. I also wanted to be a soldier. I thought, I, I'm, I, am I being selfish because uh, the lives of my family members will also be affected, possible negatively, or should I enlist in the military? Thanks for doing what you do, Nathan. Nathan, I can't answer that question with you should or you shouldn't, but I can tell you some things that you really need to think about. There's a reason that the military specifically recruits 17-, 18-, and 19-year-old kids that don't have, generally, a wife at home. And, and and there's a reason that they want their non-commissioned officers, the people, the the 10% that stick around for five years or more and stay in, to be people that eventually do that. Um, they're a lot more cautious, and they need a lot of guys to go out and get killed. And they need the older guys to try to keep the whole thing together. And, and I hate to put it that way, but that's the way that it is. The, the military, to me, is a young man's game. And 30 is still relatively young. If you weren't getting married, I'd say the hell with it, do what you want. But I'm going to tell you that the the success rate of that type of marriage is much lower. And, and you know, it doesn't mean yours won't be successful. But I, if you ask that question, I did. You know, you deserve the right answer. And especially early in a marriage, you, all of a sudden you're gone, and you're gone for a year or two. Um, it's very, very hard on a marriage. And, and the failure rate is very high, higher than normal, which is already high. So if you do this, the odds that your marriage will be successful will go down. And there's a lot of very patriotic people cringing right now. But it's the truth. And if you ask me a question, I'm going to give you the truth. There is no greater level of service that a man can do than to put his life on the line for others. But I also wonder when a 30-year-old man tells me you want to be an infantry soldier if you really know what you're getting into. Or if there's some kind of a of drama playing in your head that's, that's not real, that you haven't let go of because you've thought about it so long. And I would tell you there were other contributions you could make that you get into that sort of a role like law enforcement uh, that would keep you home. Or if the Canadian government has something equivalent to a Coast Guard. So there's other things you could do. If you do it, fine. And I respect you for it, and I honor you for it. But at thirty, at thirty myself, and I wasn't married. Uh, was I married at thirty? I don't remember now. Somewhere right around thirty is actually when I married Dorothy. Um, I guess I was like thirty-one. So thirty, I wasn't married, but I was in a long-term relationship, and we were gonna get married. I would have never joined the military at that age. Had I never been in the military, my answer might have been different. But having already served and knowing exactly what I would have been getting into, there is no way that I would have done it at thirty. So I would respect the hell out of you for doing it. But it's personally something that I wouldn't do. I would look you know, what is it that you want from the military? I think Nathan, that would be the big thing. What what is it about that level of service that you feel would make your life more complete and more whole? And I would look to see if you could find another way to do it at this stage of your life if you're concerned about your marriage. Now, I'm going to get hate mail. I'm going to get hate mail from military families that have been together for 24 years. The guy's currently deployed to Afghanistan, and this wife is faithful and waiting for him to come home, and they've been together since they were sweethearts in high school. I know that happened, so don't send me the hate mail. And I have so much respect and so much admiration for the people that are able to do that, and that's why when I get an email from a, a, a spouse, whether it's male or female that's home, about their, their their other spouse being overseas or something, that's why I thank the spouse and the service person for what they're doing, because I know it's a huge sacrifice for both. But I also know the harsh reality, that for every one that it works out for, there's at least two that it doesn't. And I, I saw... Families torn apart by deployments. I saw it happen. So you can't tell me it doesn't happen. I saw guys get the Dear John letters. So you can't tell me it doesn't happen. And it's a concern. And if you go into it believing that it's not a concern, you're not going into it fully informed. Best I can do for you today. Um, Next one, Jack. uh, What advice would you give someone on overcoming the second rut of debt? Uh, The let's take a break from being frugal period. My wife and I have been on a debt snowball for a couple years. The credit cards are paid off, as is my student loan. We still have her student loan and mortgage left to go. 12k for the student loan, 75k for the mortgage. We're both 28. We have both increased regular spending patterns lately, are still paying off the debt, but at a much slower pace. Thanks, Ted. Uh, Ted, this is what I would do. The first thing I would do is I would sit down and redo the entire, the entire financial plan. You've already come so far, you don't want to backslide. So you need to come up with the new, payment schedule. How much you got to act like you're just starting the debt snowball from a square one. But you also have to say, "You know what, Ted, Ted's wife, well done. You've done good." So, in addition to your payments on your debt, in addition to your savings, scrape up a little money for a for a party fund and put money into that. And once a year take a great vacation. Once a year go out and buy something you really really want. But don't back off, especially especially the student loan debt. It's only $12,000. That's $1,000 a month for a year. And what you need to really do is you guys need to sit down with each other, put your hands in each other's hands, look in each other's eyes, and talk about what it's going to mean when you can say we're debt-free, except the house. What will you be able to do with that $1,000 a month? Save it. And what will that mean for you in five years? You need to create the vision of where you're going. The journey is only hard if you don't know the destination. And what happens like to people like you is you get really fired up, and you really start knocking it out, and you feel really good about it, but yet you kind of get to this point where, like, man, we've done so much, and we do have more money now, and that feels good. And but you, but you don't really... You've lost sight, if you ever knew. You've lost sight of where you're headed. I want you to think about this. You're 28 years old, Um. You can have the, the the mortgage paid off. I'm confident as far as you've come in a year, right? If you have the credit cards paid off and your student loan paid off, a year, in a year, even if you just pay on the on the mortgage payment of seventy five thousand, that's a very low mortgage payment. It really is. And if if you guys didn't even want to put a lot of money against the mortgage over where it's at. And, and just kind of go from there and start saving money and all, I would be fine with it. You want to carry that mortgage at 75 grand? Go ahead. The way the economy is inflating, it, it won't matter anyway. Um, paying it off would be good too, but you, you get what I'm saying. I want you to, to, to sit down and do some math and say from the time we were 29 to the time we were 35, if we took that $1,000 a month and just put it away and a basic interest rate and things like that, what would we be worth if at 35 we didn't save another dime? If we just held that money until we were sixty five. And I want you to do that calculation. I want you to ask yourself if we got rid of the house payment and the only and you know honest to God, dude, twenty eight, seventy five thousand dollar house payment, you can knock that out in five more years. So now we're looking at thirty four. Thirty four, no house payment. Good incomes. No debt. Nothing. How much money can you save a year? How much money can you give to your charities of choice? How many vacations a year can you take and pay for cash? What kind of car can you drive at that point? Whatever it is for you, do you want, if you want a big homestead like a lot of us do, can you get into a place like that in a relatively short period of time at that point? There's so many things that this could be. And the reason I can only go so far with it for you is that frankly, I don't know what your vision is. But I'm going to tell you, anybody that's come like halfway with getting rid of the debt, and then you're just kind of starting to slide off to the side, you've lost the, the destination. If you put a crystal clear vision of the destination, you'll get right back on track, and you'll do it faster than you ever did it before. You guys might pay the 12000 off in six months. That might seem insurmountable right now. I don't know your income levels. You didn't include that, but it might happen. The funny thing is, the more serious you get, the more money you just find. And when you get that student loan paid off, again, the housing debt is the one debt that I'm kind of comfortable with some housing debt. I always want a little more going on that debt than what they ask for, because the incremental increase is is just awesome, what it does over the total life uh, of the loan. But if there's any debt that is okay, that's the debt that's okay. But get your vision crystallized. Um... And with that, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up today. I actually had one more story for today, but it's, it's already been a long show. I know my timing was a bit off, and I've got a little bit of congestion going on in the throat again. And um, so I, I hope I did a pretty good show for you guys today. Tune in tomorrow. I'm going to have a cool show for you tomorrow. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I am going to tell you it's going to be cool, and it's going to be on a single subject, and it's going to be something that everybody can do. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.